You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. I'm trying to take this thanks gourd thing and upgrade it. So I'm trying to come up with a new title for the message. And it's not hard to upgrade, sorry there, Wyatt. But uh, living somewhere between Pollyanna and punishment, I think is primarily the way that we view storms of life. Or I would offer to you uh, a more professorial. I, I love listening to John preach because he's kind of got that professor thing going on. And he, and he lines them all up in threes and they do that. And uh, I'd like to come up here and do everything the opposite, uh, just to get a new taste. But the non sequitur of life in the spirit, that if you're going to be controlled by the spirit of God, and if you're going to surrender your life to him, stuff you do isn't going to make sense. It's not going to follow. And that's our journey today. We'll see how these titles unfold. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, if you were to take a, <clears throat> if we were to take a, a poll right now and take a moment to ask people around us, what's the storms in their life? Everybody would have one. Storms they've come through, storms they're anticipating, storms we're in right now. Some dragging on, some acute, some difficult, some actual storms from the hurricanes that have come through this place. Mr. that all, I'd ask that you would open up your word, open up your people's hearts so that we might better understand our response and your presence in the storm. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's first talk about a non sequitur. As according to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, in Latin, a non sequitur. By the way, I, I, before you let me know, I know. I, the first time I used non sequitur, I misspelled it. So it should be non T-U-R. In Latin, non sequitur means it does not follow. The phrase was borrowed into the English in the 1500s by people who made a formal study of logic. For them, it meant a conclusion that does not follow from the statements that lead to it. But now we use non sequitur for any kind of statement that seems to come out of the blue. That's what I'm saying to you is going to kind of be the overarching theme of learning to be thankful in the storm is that it is a non sequitur to life. If it were to have an emoji, because emojis are so important to our lives now, if it were to have an emoji, it would look like this. <laughs> this is what you'd attach to your email if you're going to go non sequitur. It's like, wait, what? what, what? So before we go on, I want to kind of give to you a little summary of our text, or sort of a pretext before the text. Paul has just spent one and a half in his missionary journey. He's just spent one and a half years in Ephesus. He is just loving the people of Ephesus, and they're loving him. But God tells him, enough at Ephesus. We know that you're doing well there. I need you to come to Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem, there's all kind of trouble. There's persecution, there's starvation, there's issues. So Paul takes up an offering and goes to Jerusalem. And the people of Ephesus are going, oh, don't go, don't go, Paul. We love you. We want you to stay here. Don't go. 
it would seem normal when you are in ministry and the church of Ephesus is growing, it would seem normal and reasonable that, yep, you would want to stay on and continue to grow it there and not head toward a church in a place of time of trouble. So one of the first non secretors is the fact that Paul is sent from a bunch of people who love him to a bunch of people who don't. <laughs> There are a bunch of people who are after him, who have been looking for him, who are ready to persecute him, who have, in certain ways, done so already. What he does, he goes to Jerusalem, and he gets arrested, and he gets run up to pole by the Pharisees, and he gets beaten and put in prison. The trouble that he anticipated, he found, just as it was, it was noted. So... While this is all going on with the Pharisees, the Pharisees, just like they did with Jesus, were going to turn him, turn Paul over to the Romans. But Paul gets a visit from Christ that says, I want you to go to Rome and bear witness to me. So Paul, who's about to be acquitted, this is key, who's about to be acquitted for the crimes by the Romans, appeals to Caesar. What this means is that because he was a Roman citizen, he can appeal to Caesar is sort of an appellate process and, and a very public rendition of his message. So he could have gotten off the hook, his second non-secretary. He could have been let go. He could have been a free man. But he said, no, I'm going to stand on my Roman citizenship and say, I want to bring this to Caesar. Why did he do that? It's a non-secretary. doesn't follow. This is the second time that life could have been much different, much easier, much smoother for because he just beat the Pharisees. He can grow the church in Jerusalem. But he appeals to Caesar. And at that time, a guy named Felix goes, Oh, geez. Paul, you are a troublemaker. And he kind of, in my own imagination, went, I know. <laughs> so Paul now becomes a prisoner, about to be sent back from Jerusalem to Rome. Now, you and I, if we want to take a catch a flight, go to Rome, just catch a flight, and I mean, flights travel all over the world now. My son just got back from a mission trip in Nairobi, and he flew from JFK in New York to Nairobi. That's a long flight. Well, it's a longer boat ride from Jerusalem to Italy because, number one, it's a boat, not an airplane. Okay, I get it. Number two, because they had to just constantly pop into these uh, ports constantly popping in, never getting too far from shore. And then they would be subject to the storms of the day. So what's going on here is Paul turns into a prisoner, even though he could have been set free, and he gets put on the ship with a, with a bunch of other prisoners. But what happens is Paul befriends the centurions. He befriends the soldiers of the boat who are taking him to Italy and begins to act as a leader. So Paul, who's a prisoner, what you're going to read and what we're going to share together, what you're going to discover is that Paul is another non-secretor, is that he's acting as a leader, as a spiritual head, as a person bringing calm, as a person bringing justice, as a person bringing hope, even though he's a stinking prisoner. God once again at work. Now, that's just all background. Let's go turn to Acts 27. It's a little bit longer of a text, but we'll walk, walk, walk through it. All that is background, Acts 27 to 27. When the 14th night had come, 
Oh, I didn't, I didn't say that. They got caught in a storm. One more thing before. Don't read that. Don't read that. He got, he got caught in a storm. What would happen, and I had to read up on this because I don't know anything about boating. I was on a cruise once, and that's all I know is that they're really nice ships, and it probably didn't look like what Paul was on. But what happens is that they would get caught up in a squall or a storm or a frontal system. And in fact, in the book of Acts, it talks about a nor'easter, which we know in the United States, if you live in New York or Massachusetts, and these nor'easters that come up and come up the coast and bring all kind of havoc and terrible weather. And because they couldn't often sail through them, they would ride this nor'easter and get caught up in the cycle of the storm. And it would push them out to sea, it would push them around, and they would be subject to the direction and the winds of the storm. And it could go on for days. And this one has gone on for days. If you've ever been caught in this boat in a storm or been in rough waters at sea and been nauseous, you know how difficult and problematic that could be. Imagine doing that for 14 days. <laughs> so this is kind of life in where Paul enters now. That's our background. And the 14th night had come. 14 days in a storm caught up in this frontal system of the squall. We're being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. Things are getting shallow. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. I love that phrase, and prayed for day to come. It shows the desperation because guess what? They're sailors, they're smart, they know that day's going to come. But they want it to come quicker, sooner. They're hesitant. They're struggling. They're just caught up in it. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and they lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul, remember, Paul's a prisoner. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Paul's given orders. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So, <laughs> all right, you just for that, gain, gain a sense. Paul is in control. He's giving commands. He's giving them direction and movement. He's doing away with their lifelines. The soldiers cut away the boat. One more way to get off this boat that you're caught in the storm just went away. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. What does that sound like an echo of? Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 people on ship. Huh. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. <laughs> I love that line. They got no boat. Now they got no food <laughs> and no ropes. And Paul's going, you're going to be fine. Talk about a non sequitur. All right, so let's cover this one. Let's answer this question. Why are there storms, or why are there storms at all? The nature of the storms. 
So first of all, it's, uh, this is run kind of a quick primer on suffering and the origin of sin and evil. But that's the context. So in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus looks out from eternity and from earth and goes, yeah, don't expect not to have trouble. This is going to be a difficult time because this is the nature of the world that we selected. Now, what happened? Here's some bullet points. First one is from 1 John 3.8. The devil had sinned from the beginning. Jesus says from the beginning, Satan was a liar. So this is very awkward. I don't know really what to do with it. Because I don't know when the beginning was, per se, in terms of timeline. But when Satan was around, he had sinned from the he, That was his personhood, his nature. It raises all kinds of interesting questions, doesn't it? Like, well, then, if he was created, why did he turn? Could he turn? When did he turn? How did that look? And the Bible answers very few of those questions, except to say, no, Satan was around from the beginning, and that's just who he was. It is his nature. John, Jesus would say in John chapter 8, when he lies, he speaks his native language, because he is the liar and the father of lies. Wow, unpack that for a little bit. So there's the origin of evil. Secondly, Isaiah 14 and Luke 10 talks about the fall of Satan from heaven. Now, Isaiah 14 is a story that is told about the king from Babylon and his rise and fall that many scholars believe it matches up to be a, a kind of a metaphorical description of what happened to Satan, how he fell. That basically is a, an interpretation that has been confirmed when Jesus says to the disciples, the disciples come back from their trip uh, where they're spreading the gospel message. They come back and they say, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus goes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. But don't concern yourself with that. Be concerned first and foremost with these people in their lives. Jesus puts the whole context of the Satan from the beginning and being a father of lies and, and uh, falling from heaven as subtext. As if to say, this is Carl's interpretation, as if to say, it happened, I got that. That's not your issue. That's not the, your concern. He's been dealt with and will be dealt with. And the book of Revelation goes into detail that we're not even going to touch. Thirdly, the book, uh, we'll touch it. <laughs> <laughs> Satan is the deceiver of the world, Revelation 12, 9. Now, the key here is deception. You know, what I have found in my ministry is that sometimes we're awful quick to give power to devil, which is not his. He can't invade you. He, he can't um, push you around. He can't harass you. He's got one trick, and he does that one trick really, really well, and that's to deceive you. Deception is his key. Deception is what calls you, and deception is what his primary tool is. So, and it's deception that happens uh, typically slowly, right? If you uh, all of a sudden walk up here and put a blindfold on my eyes, I'll go, oh, that went dark. But if you, one hour at a time, put shades of gray on my lenses, I'll, it'll grow darker and I won't recognize it or be as quick to discover it. That's a deception, and oftentimes the way he works. So his work is deception, creating doubt, creating room. In Genesis chapter 3, which we'll cover in a second, it goes, did God, did he, did he really say you would? 
It's posing the question. It's letting it go. Because once the question is posed, it's out there now. So his primary focus is deception. Next, from Genesis chapter 3, this is how Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey. Did God really say? Now, what's critical to understand here is that it has nothing to do with the fruit that was plucked and all of that. It had everything to do with locus of control, which is kind of a psychological term that I learned as a marriage and family therapist, but it means where is your control? And what if you leave here or if you do something, it, you will... What you do will be interpreted by how it affects you. The way creation was established and the way the balance between with us and God and the way heaven is promised is that it's not all about me, it's all about God. Now, I realize that that sounds elementary and almost silly, but again, and I've used this example, I think, when I preached here before, it was enough to say if you put four of us on a the four corners here of Estero and 41. There's a fender bender in the middle of the intersection. In the police interview, all four people, they're going to get how many interpretations of what happened? Four. And the reason that is called phenomenology, meaning I see the world from my own point of view. And my own point of view is colored by my history, my physiology, my context. And the, that's wrong. <laughs> it, it, it's so endemic. It's so embedded in us. It's so a part of who we are, and we live life this way that we just can't get beyond it and around it. It's wrong. Life is seen from the creator's perspective. Who he is, what he wants, what he does. I wonder what God wants to do next. So if we go back to Paul's example, when Paul's in Ephesus, if he would have stayed according to his own desires, he would have said, Jerusalem can wait. I'm hanging back in Ephesus where people love me and I love them. But his locus of control was external. It was on God. It was on his creator, his redeemer, on his sanctifier who said, leave Ephesus and go to Jerusalem where there's lots of trouble, where you're going to be done. I worked for seven years as consultant and as um, uh, vice president for ministry support of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And I discovered that this is the issue when a congregation tries to put together a vision and a mission. Most everybody interprets the vision and the mission of that congregation from their perspective rather than what God is calling us to do. Because if God is calling us to do something, it's probably going to cost us what? It's going to cost us perspective. It's going to cost us giving up our own control. And isn't that the heart of all addictions? So my point in all that to run that far is that's the temptation. The temptation is to be self-centered. And we are so self-centered, we can't see our self-centeredness. It seems normal or natural. Yet all the imagery that you can go through in the book of Revelation about eternity in heaven is the Lamb is at the center. God is at the center. But it's hard to get there. Next. Paul says, sin entered the world through one man, Adam. So this was, this was the channel. This is the way in which it did. 
And then lastly, Romans says, creation longs to be freed from its bondage to decay. This explains why there are storms like hurricane uh, that roll through South Florida and other places. And storms, storms of life, sorrow, diagnosis, cancer, struggle, accident, pain, and suffering. It says, creation longs to be freed from its bondage to decay. What happened in the fall was systemic poisoning. That's why the earth was now uh, had to be tilled and worked and struggled and every two steps forward, one step back. There's a systemic effect to sin, systemic effect to self-centeredness. If you've been married a long time, if you've been married a short time, get ready for it because in marriage is a constant struggle with putting the partner first in line and putting second needs of self. So this is kind of the nature of storms and why they're there. They're, the origin is from Satan. He struggles, he gets us to struggle with perspective and a self-centered perspective is systemically endemic. It just spreads and causes trouble everywhere. One bad apple kind of thing. So what is our responses to storms? I would say the first one is Pollyanna, irrepressible. Is This is our first temptation. This isn't right. But if you know anything about Pollyanna, she had what was called an irrepressible optimism. She would look at the storm and go, oh, if you keep looking hard enough, you'll find a silver lining someplace today. Pollyanna's kind of phrases sound a little bit like Mr. Rogers. Just keep looking, friends, and you will find that things are going to be better. You have to be glad and be happy, and the dark storm clouds will go away. This is not helpful. <laughs> this is kind of like a Hallmark perspective, if I can take a little shot at Hallmark. Sorry, Mom. About sort of superficially looking at life and just trying to find the bright side, and here's the silver lining, and everything will be okay, and here's a pat on the head. And uh, it's not that, but neither is it. I couldn't think of any other example. Did anybody remember this guy, Eeyore, <laughs> from uh, Winnie the Pooh? We were raising our kids. Winnie the Pooh was still popular. I don't, I don't know. Is Winnie the Pooh popular among kids anymore? Still there? Okay, good, good, good. The honey jar thing. So we are convinced of God's anger and punishment. That's kind of like. Nobody loves me. God is now angry with me. It's never going to get better. It always happens to me. Why does it ever happen to you? You know, it's that kind of thing. Well, that's not helpful either. <laughs> Pollyanna, oh, look at the silver lining. Eeyore, it's terrible. Someplace in between there is what we're going to take a look at. So let's examine that a little bit closer. Non-secretary, spoiler alert, Paul is a prisoner, leads a time of thanksgiving. So let's dive into the text just a little bit deeper to kind of grasp how we would fall in the middle between Pollyanna and Eeyore. Just before dawn, I want to stop right there, I got the words that are in bold. So Paul picks the darkest time. <laughs> 
He doesn't wait till the sun comes out and everything is rosy just before, you know, there's a cliche, it's always darkest before the dawn. Well, that's true. <laughs> and that was true metaphorically and it's true physically. Just before dawn, Paul steps into the darkest of darkness. After 14 days of being tossed to and fro, I can't imagine the nausea I would be feeling. Notice right there and there, when I try to imagine the nausea that I am feeling, I'm exercising the very sin that's called original sin because I'm worried about what would be nauseous from my perspective rather than my first reflex, which could have, would have, should have been. Boy, how did Paul manage that? Why did God call him to do that? See how the difference is, right? But Paul steps into the darkest of darknesses. Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You have eaten anything. Notice Paul's look. It has to do with the people out there, not how to keep quick, get some food in his stomach. Now I urge you to take some food you needed to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. That was a promise that Paul was given by God that the whole boat would be saved. And that's the promise that Paul is passing along. Now, <laughs> again, give this some context. It's been 14 days at sea. Paul's a prisoner. It's in the middle of the night, the darkest part of the whole day. They've been struggling forever, feeling lost at, at sea, and probably are lost, indeed are lost at sea, struggling. And Paul steps in and says, nobody here is going to die. Paul, are you looking at the weather? Have you seen how lost we are? Can you feel nauseous? You see the guys puking over the side? I'm making this up. I don't know if they The assumption is that Paul is standing on a promise. So that's the risk that we take to live life in the spirit. That we look at the darkest of times or in the darkest of days and go, no, God is there. And it's made a promise that's going to be fulfilled in your world, in your time. Now, I would sometimes hesitate to make these promises because, uh, why? Back to the original sin. Because I would look like a fool, or I don't totally believe it. Paul is illustrating the way to deal with the storm, the thanksgiving to offer during the middle of the storm by saying, may not look like it. It's awfully dark. We're tossed by the waves. The storm won't let, it won't relent. Life is terrible. Sailors are trying to escape. <laughs> Everything is going to be good. God told me. Wow. Does that take some courage? Does that take some trust? That takes some believing in what God has said to me and not my personal response. Because if I'm going to look around, I'm going to go, doesn't look like anything like that. Then he, uh, so again, after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. It's an echo of the Lord's Supper, but it's not a Lord's Supper meal. It's, where did, the, where did you last hear scripturally these words? But in the upper room with Jesus, who took bread, broke it. It was a common way to eat bread. It would be those Hawaiian loaves that are so good that we never buy a super sweet like that. What I used to do before I got to be the age I am now is grab a piece of that Hawaiian bread uh, from the from the dip it in spinach dip, load it up like that, and eat it. 
I know you don't care, but I'm just saying the point of that is that's the nature of the bread that they would eat. It wasn't loaves that they would pass out. Well, they all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 people on board. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. The first time I read this, I marked it in my Bible. I actually have at home a hard copy Bible <laughs> that I used in school and in seminary. It has pages in it. And and I remember underlining that and threw the grain into the sea. That's trust. For the last bit of food, the last rowboats, the last bit of hope. What do I have to cling to now? What is left? All the things that I would use to get through this storm are gone. <laughs> what do I have left? Oh, God made a promise. You can lose the ship, but you're going to make it. In fact, everybody's going to make it. I love it. You know what it makes me think? It makes me think that it's this kind of emoji is just the nature of walking with God. The constant struggle that's happening inside of us. Now notice, Paul is not asking us to think, to do, to live, to be any different than he had it would himself. Take a look at Paul's lifestyle of giving thanks in this storm. Number one is Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now that could sound like an empty promise except for what, what, Paul, what Paul has been through. So he says, in all circumstances, in all, did I say all? All circumstances, give thanks to God. So next and he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is the call, this is the words of Jesus to the guy who's supposed to go get Paul and on the road in Damascus. Meredwees and I checked our call documents, and I had four calls when I was in the, in the, in the congregational ministry, and not one of them said, come to Texas so you, must, so you can suffer for God's name. If they did, I wouldn't have taken it. But Paul's essence, his calling, was to suffer for the name of Christ. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Thirdly, it's illustrated. Paul shares a list of his sufferings as an apostle in 2 Corinthians 11. Multiple imprisonments, beatings, stones, shipwrecked three times, not once, twice, three times. Dangerous inheritance from frequent travel. It's a long list. I didn't want to go through it. Paul then lived the non sequitur. And he would come out of each of those going, yep, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we're going to worship him together. It definitely produces, Paul's life is one non sequitur emoji. Paul's life is like, really? Let's begin to wrap this up. Let's finding the love of God in the storm as the ultimate non sequitur. First of all, perfect love casts out all fear. When you're in the storm, perhaps you are in the storm, where does that come from? It actually isn't an act of courage, but an act of love. 
Perfect love casts out all fear. And the reason why that's critical to understand is that love is the antithesis of fear. Love is what kicks fear out is because it's not something we can generate. Courage comes from within. The word courage from the Greek cardia means heart. And, and there's a pumping of the blood and the enlargement of the veins and the adrenaline which flows when you've got to have some courage. You've got to move forward. The love that God is talking about here is agape love. And as John has said so eloquently since I've been coming here and so wonderfully, it's a, it's a strange kind of love that loves no matter what, no matter when, no matter how, no matter what happens. It's agape love, and I can't generate agape love. My love is conditional. The love that I give always is reflected in how it's going to affect me. Even the, my purest form of love, agape love, on the other hand, simply is the love of God flowing toward you, flowing toward me, inhabiting us, creating us a new person, a new world, a new time, a love that is unending, unyielding, and unconditional. Just even to say that sounds academic because who can have such a thing? Where does that come from? It comes from God. That's why we're baptized. That's why we take the sacrament. That's why we live with Christians. That's why we read God's word, because that love needs to constantly mold and shape us and come from its outside into us. Finding the love of God in the storm. Secondly, Jesus' suffering illustrating perfect love in the non-sequitur of the cross. <laughs> the uh, Quran talks about Jesus. Muslims will talk about Jesus. And there's just a little bit of overlap in terms of the message of Jesus. But it comes to a sharp and sudden end on what event? The cross. Hindus, um, other world religions will acknowledge that Christ has some good teachings but will come to a quick stop when you talk about the suffering and the cross. The ultimate non-sequitur from our God is that he would send a son and then punish him for our sins. Say, what? <laughs> that he would send a son who would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And be totally abandoned so I would never know abandonment. See, Jesus is a God who didn't just say, you got to get through that storm somehow. I'll give you a hand and some encouragement. Look for the silver lining or wonder why God is punishing you. He said, hold on a second, let me go. And went to the depths of suffering. Because what you see on the cross is not only the physical suffering the Romans worked so hard at delivering, but the abandonment by God, which was ultimately exactly what cost him so dearly, why he wrestled in the garden. No matter what storms and tempests we face, real storms and hurricanes that flow through our world down here or simply storms in our lives and relationships and finances, Christ has said to us, hold on, I'll go first. That's the nature of the non-secretor of living in the storms. Is he did what he calls us to do and says, okay, come on. Secondly, Paul's suffering, illustrating perfect love in the non-sequitur of his calling. We've covered that already. Basically, 
But it falls right in line. Paul did the same thing. He came and said, okay, I'll go to Jerusalem. Okay, I'll go on a ship. Okay, I'll be, I'll be stoned, etc., etc." Paul's walk and Paul's life was all focused on the calling of God. Thirdly and lastly, the storms of lives illustrating perfect love in the non-secretor of our witness of the Christ. It means that we don't speak Pollyannishly about our suffering. It means that we don't speak like Eeyore about our suffering. But honestly and lovingly, we would say, what I'm going through stinks. I hate it. What's happening to my life, to my friend, the diagnosis that I've gotten back eats away at me, and I struggle with it every day. But yet in the midst of it, there exists a God who has been there and done that and walked in the middle of it. That very storm, as awkward and odd as it seems, carries the love of God. That very storm carries a call to trust, to live, and to love. So I'm not giving thanks for the storms in your life and mine. I'm not dismissing them and saying, don't worry about it, you can get through it. I'm saying they come because they come. It's the nature of the systemic way in which evil has spread and continues to inflict our world. But God has come in the middle of them. And when the storm ceases and the dawn arrives, the storm is gone, but the love is not.